You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan, I'm a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Dan, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Today we're going to talk about surprising post-games, but actually this is just a veil, a very thin veil, admittedly, so that I can ramble about Dragon Quest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll support you in that. There's plenty to talk about with Dragon Quest. So if we, uh, and plenty to talk about only with the post-game in Dragon Quest, to be honest. Indeed, yeah. I just finished the game a couple of days ago after around 150 hours, I want to say. And that includes the post-game. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's one of those games where you put 120 hours in and then the third chapter starts. <laughs> yeah, it's incomprehensible to me. It completely caught me off guard mm. because I wasn't aware. I was aware that it's a long game. I was aware that it's a fully formed game, but not that it's that extensive. It's commendable, honestly, because there's uh, there's so many points in that game where you think, I think it's over now. And then it just keeps going and it keeps your interest, which for a game that's 150 hours long is a feat unto itself. I think only Persona has managed that before with me to keep me intrigued for so long. Yeah, I don't know how many games other than Persona and Dragon Quest that I would stick around for 200 hours. Oh, well, I'll get into one of them. Uh, I've played Neo for like 800,000 hours or something. So, <laughs> <laughs> Where the time counter is just like an error message because it's exceeded the maximum displayable it number. It just says go outside, Dan. <laughs> yes, just take a break. It's enough. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so when we're going to talk about post-games, we talk about uh, the section of the game that comes after the credits, basically. <clears throat> That's how we define it. It's when the main part of the story is over, when usually the main antagonist is defeated, and then additional stuff is unlocked. Now, two things are important here, or three things, actually. Three things we should mention up top. The first one is, this is not a definitive list, as many of our episodes do. They do not come with, like, you know, a comprehensive list of best post games, but this alludes only to those that we have played. Mm. The second point is that we're not including DLC, because DLC is, of course, designed to expand the game and often takes place after the main story is over. Wouldn't make any sense. It's not a surprise if you play, like, a The Witcher DLC that there's more there than the main yeah. story. You you know it's extra content, right? Exactly. And the third point is that, of course, there will be spoilers for the games that we talk about. I think we inevitably have to place some spoiler warnings because we're going to talk about the post-game, which often requires a little bit of understanding of how the game ends. But mm. we will let you know in, about each individual game that we're going to talk about that there's going to be a spoiler ahead so that you're not being caught off guard and you can choose to then just skip a couple of minutes of this episode so you're not getting spoiled. As always, I want to remind you that if you like this show and you want to help us make it happen, then you can do so by subscribing to Studying Pixels Plus. That way, you get all of our episodes entirely ad-free. You get a lovely sticker and monthly plus episodes. Some of them are about deep dives into video game culture and others are about more academic subjects such as how to do a cool presentation and so on. If you're curious about that, then you can go to studyingpixels.com plus to find out more. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, let's talk about some surprising post-games. And maybe we can just stick with the subject of Dragon Quest, since we're already on it, and this is basically just me talking about Dragon Quest for an entire episode. <laughs> hey, I think that's worth it. I mean, that's kind of what sparked the idea, right? So let's, is, yeah. uh, let's dive right in. Dragon Quest Eleven, the longest, most interesting game that's come out from Square Enix in quite a long time. <laughs> <laughs> it is absolutely impressive. I don't mm. know how it happened that I slept on this game for so long. Because I do remember that I went to Gamescom before it came out and mm. there was all of this, you know, like in these entertainment halls, there's lots of noise and everyone's excited about Battlefield and Call of Duty and these things and new FIFA. And there was like one small console station set up on the side and it was running Dragon Quest and nobody was even paying attention to it. And I saw it and I thought, wow, this is like, this looks really cool. And I played Dragon Quest X, I think, many mm. years ago. So I went there and I started playing it and I was immediately enthralled. Then I completely forgot about its existence. Up, It came out in 2017, mm. up until a couple of months ago when I saw it that it's part, it was part of the PlayStation Plus collection or something like that. And then I thought, yes, that will be my Christmas game. And it was. It was a long Christmas game. It was a Christmas game from <laughs> mid-December to mid-February. Yeah, it's... I don't know what it is about Dragon Quest, but I feel like it's the sleeper hit of video. It's like, um, it's not like Mario, but it's kind of in the same realm to me where it's this game that's been around for as long as games have really. And it has this long pedigree, it has this long history and legacy, but you do, you sleep on it for some reason. Cause I had the exact same, uh, experience, not with Gamescom, but it came out in 2017. I didn't play it until 2019. And when I played it, I was like, where was this? Why Why didn't I jump on this when it came out? It's an incredible game. Yeah. Why did nobody tell me that Dragon Quest is as amazing as it actually is? Because yeah. I think it's it's because it's such a longstanding franchise or series rather than franchise mm. that um, it has uh, become very confident in its abilities in its narrative and its characters and its systems to the degree that it's... It's just one of the genuinely most engaging JRPGs I've ever played in my life without um, causing any kind of huge uh, marketing buzz or something. Yeah, it's like it relies on itself to get it through because it's... I know that they're, the Dragon Quest games are very big in Japan, of course, because they've been around forever. 
but there's also the uh, Akira Toriyama connection where the creator of Dragon Ball is the basic... It's it's a little murky now how involved he is with the character design. I think they just kind of ape his style at this point. But yeah. it's yeah. really... I mean, it's hard to be uh, anything but charming when you look like Dragon Ball. Initially, that's what drew me to it. Because mm. I was like... I was never a big Dragon Ball fan, but the aesthetic style of the game was so distinct uh, and Dragon Ball-esque that I thought... This looks really cool. I'm going to start playing this. And then I was surprised that beneath this layer of, you know, just a very pretty, quirky, Dragon Ball-esque characters is actually a genuinely engaging story and deep JRPG mechanics. It's one of these JRPGs that you start playing and uh, you go into it with a rather innocent mindset, much like the mm. protagonist who's born as the luminary and he has to save the world and you accumulate a party of very different companions that you get to know and explore the world and it's all very manageable. Mm. And then things escalate very quickly. No, not very quickly. They escalate in the long run. Yeah. In unexpected ways. And maybe this is a good time to implement a spoiler warning here. Yes, we should. So, because <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't played Dragon Quest Eleven, do yourself a favor and play it. Yes, either you can pause the episode here or you can skip ahead a couple of minutes because we're now going to spoil um, basically the main part of the game, how it how it ends and how it ends again, we could say, maybe. So we'll, we'll see you in 150 hours when you come back. Yes. <laughs> you're like, you, you go back to play Dragon Quest for 150 hours and then you're like, wait, why, why did I do this just now? <laughs> Studying Pixels is 10 episodes ahead. I don't know what I did. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a simple journey when it starts out mm -hmm. and it all dri is driving towards, you need to go to the Tree of Life, called Yggdrasil, of course, and you need to get the Sword of Light from that tree and you will basically gain the power to overthrow the evil overlord Mordegon, the evil mm -hmm. wizard that is basically holding or threatening to hold the world in its grasp, in its in its clasp and you do that and you go to the tree of life but much to my surprise you are not gaining the sword you're not entering the final chapter but instead the entire world is smashed to pieces and Mordigon takes over so you're basically being thrown all the way back your party is entirely disbanded and you need to work your way up again to defeat Mordigon. and i should say at this point you had the exact reaction that I did when I played it, which was you thought you were coming to the end of it. And then when that, when the world shatters and it's plunged into darkness and there's real consequence, people die and it's really kind of terrifying. You, you kind of get a gut punch because you have been primed, especially if you've played JRPGs like you and I have to think, well, that's the end of it. No, no, <laughs> it gets much worse before it gets better. Exactly. I think that's a good point. You always have this logic ingrained, not only on a narrative level, but also on a gameplay level, that it gets better and better. Your party gets stronger and stronger. Your characters, you know, they're cooperating more and more. Your equipment gets better. But then when you're just at the peak of it and you think now it's going to basically take a turn to the into the final chapter, uh, it's just the beginning because then the second part of the game starts where you have to rebuild where you have to try and rekindle the faint flame of hope that is still present in the world and where you have to fight back against all of the atrocities that are committed in the world mm. 
And so you do that and you regather your party and you regain your strength and you fight all your way back to the castle of fear in which Mordigon resides and you defeat him and then the credits roll and you think, amazing, that was a really fully fleshed, beautiful video game. However, <laughs> this and is now, you could be, at this point, I think you could legitimately be 80 to 90 hours in the game. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And you're like, um, I, I was at this point, I was ready to say goodbye to the game. I was ready to say, okay, so this is it. But it has an impressive post game because one of the characters in the party, she died throughout the process of trying to save the world. And when I already came to terms with the fact that it was the case, that this character was no longer around anymore, in the post-game, you can stumble upon some ruins where you get some hints about a wheel of time so you can kind of turn back time. Mm -hmm. But you find out ultimately only the protagonist can travel into the past and everyone else will remain behind. And so what you do is you enter into another huge journey. So this is basically, you, are, you go back to the very point in time where Yggdrasil, the tree of life, was originally destroyed. And from there, you fight against Mordigon. You defeat him again. And another greater evil yeah. behind Mordigon is revealed. And guess what? You get to go on another great journey. <laughs> it's, it's, it sounds, when, when you think about it, that there's a lot of potential for bloat <laughs> with this story. But, and I don't know how you feel about this stuff. We'll find out now. But when I played it, I was so enchanted and enthralled with all of the characters that I think it, it hit me in the perfect way because the character that you're talking about who dies, it's truly tragic when that happens Yes, in a way that I haven't felt since Aerith probably in Final Fantasy VII. And you feel this sense of, because Dragon Quest is such a positive, genuine uh, completely void of cynicism story, you feel this emptiness inside where you say, I wish that I could have helped everybody. I wish that everything could have been set right. And then you get a chance to do it. But in that chance, there's a real melancholy because as you mentioned, only the, the luminary, the main character can go back in time. And there's this sense that the people that you're going back to aren't the people that you've been with the entire time because you're going back to a point where they haven't experienced the fall into the darkness, right? They haven't been through everything that you had been through with them. So the game kind of addresses how really sad that is. There's a really touching farewell scene with all of the characters that you've come to know before you go back in time. And there's a sense that, okay, I have put everything right, but I've also lost something really important. You've lost something for good. And that is mm. the... Well, you lost the closeness to the party that you had before, and at the same time, you kind of have some hope that you can rekindle it, because you get yeah. to know your friends basically all over again, and there's even a character who is a trigger to being hostile to you again, and you need to regain this character's trust or allegiance. Uh, so, I guess why I find this such an impressive or surprising post-game is that I did not expect, and I just checked the numbers, that after after 60 to 80 hours, it surprised me with its first turn, where the <laughs> tree of life was destroyed. At around 120 hours, 
I rolled the credits for the game and defeated the big bad. And then the third chapter began where it's all about, oh, wait, there's actually a much bigger evil than that. So it was mm. kind of, it always felt like it's an endless journey, but it is motivating because it's told in small chapters. It's a little bit like, you know, you can get through a long book or a long story if yeah. it's apportioned in the right way. And Dragon Quest really manages to do that, to portion it mostly exactly the right way. You know what I'll say? This word is obviously thrown around really flippantly in the video game sphere, but it's it's truly an epic Dragon Quest XI. There's, it's, a, it's a saga. There's these huge arcs that will take place that at the end of each of them, you're satisfied, but you're left wanting. And I think that the game does this really incredible thing where at the end of the, tr the true end of the game... I don't think you feel wanting anymore. Everything feels like it's fallen into place and you've seen everything to its conclusion. There's also something that I wish more games did, although maybe I don't because it's very special when, they, when it happens. There's a particular story that I love, which is the person that you think is the bad guy, in this case, Mordegon, is actually a kind of stalwart defense against a much worse evil. And he fell to the dark side by trying to help the world, right? This, this character, Mordegon, used to be a character named Morkant, who was intent on stopping this huge evil, and it just didn't work. It reminds me of um, my, one of my favorite anime series, uh, Gurren where, spoilers for Gurren the person you think who is the big bad is really somebody who tried to stop a worse evil and kind of succumb to it himself. And there's something so compelling to me about that, especially in a game that's clearly thematically about second chances. Yes, it's all about redemption mm. in Dragon Quest. Even the characters that committed the most terrible and heinous acts, they still have a chance to redeem themselves, except for Mordegon, maybe. Mm. Um, well, pretty, pretty kind bad. of, kind <laughs> of. Kind of. It's a little bit hard to say because he still, to a certain degree, gets a redemption arc. Um, it's not as straightforward as that. I don't want to go into all the nitty-gritty now because, as you can imagine, in a 150-hour story, there's it's lots a lot. of detail. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot going on there, and there's a lot going on there that we don't need to get into because it would be just too detailed for anything, for anyone who hasn't played the game to understand. But in any case, I think I found that so impressive Especially mm. considering that, of course, yes, I did play the definitive edition of the game. Um, Echoes of an Elusive Age definitive edition is the correct title of the game. And there's just no such sense of here's DLC, here's an expansion, here's an additional chapter and so on. But they really conceptualize this all the way through straight from the get-go. Very charming and something that's so rare these days where a game is really truly complete where i found myself saying oh i wish i could do this and then it came up a little bit later you know i didn't platinum it though i must say because by the time it was <laughs> <What>? over <laughs> i was so glad it was over i was like I, I enjoyed it i enjoyed my journey it was it's also a very grind heavy game like you've got lots and mm. lots and lots of random encounters to fight through and stuff like that um and by the time i had defeated the big evil baddie I was just happy that it was done. Yeah. I I think that uh, Dragon Quest is notorious for endgame grinding. <laughs> and uh, 
I immediately was reminded of Dragon Quest intentionally because when playing another of our favorite games, Yakuza Like a Dragon, the end game grind there is literally a mock of Dragon Quest. Oh, God. <laughs> it's that all was parody. So terrible. I know. So <laughs> imagine that, but sincere, and you get the grind to platinum in Dragon Quest XI. <laughs> you need to, like, I, I partially I just listen to an audio book on the side mm -hmm. or to a podcast studying pixels, for example, I can recommend. <laughs> and just, you know, you can you at least have the feature to set your characters to auto battle. Yeah. So you don't have to select every single attack. And uh, then you can just, yeah, just do the thing for me. I want to do other things on the side because I can't sit here for, I don't know, five hours and just go through the same dungeon. It's truly expansive and something that, again, we don't really see nowadays, outside of maybe mainline Nintendo games, that this thing has been completely thought out, as you said, and it's completely finished. And I think that as much as I love it, I think about how much time I spent in it and the experience that I had. It's one of those expansive, massive post games where I think, I don't know that I'll ever play that again. Yeah, <laughs> It was lovely. I don't think I'll ever go back. Certainly. No, <laughs> I'm certainly not going to play <laughs> that game again. It was a great, a great experience going through it. And I'm going to certainly also play a Dragon Quest XII um, yes. if it is ever announced and comes out. And, and then oh, I is. won't sleep on it. It's announced? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we got a, uh, it was a little bit of a teaser, I think, at the Tokyo Game Show. So it's coming. It's coming. I'm definitely going to play that. And I'm not going to sleep on it again because mm. I think it's going to be uh, a fantastic experience. What else have we got on the list? We've got lots of Japanese games. We do. I think, well, okay, let's go from... JRPG to JRPG. I want to talk about okay. Final Fantasy X. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we are on record as saying we love Final Fantasy X. Yes. One of our favorites. Mm -hmm. uh, it also has one of the best post games. If you play the remaster version, which is the international version, which is the game that is, uh, to use the Dragon Quest terminology, the, def the definitive edition. So once you've beaten the game, you've, you know, uh, oh, spoilers for Final Fantasy X. <laughs> Once you've beaten the game, you've defeated Sin, you know, you've you've restored peace to Spira. Um, even before that, I think, you're able to access this post-game content, which is more expansive than you'd think. There are, uh, in Final Fantasy X, the summoned monsters, which are also very important to the game, called the Aeons. There is a whole quest that you can embark on where you defeat the Dark Aeons. Massively powerful versions of your summons that are very difficult to defeat. You can go around and get really cool rewards from beating them. And it's also just really a cool idea. It's very grind heavy. I remember that. Yeah. Because I did play Final Fantasy X when I was younger. And I remember that I only played it till the credits rolled. And only years later on the beautiful ps vita mm. i played the remaster and then i thought hmm you know since i had such a fond memories of this game i'm going to platinum it this time and i did not know that the credits are basically just let's say the halfway point of the mm -hmm. actual journey towards the platinum trophy because then the grind sets in i remember there was like a there was a, a labyrinth or something or a kind of dungeon where you could go through um, technically endlessly and just grind uh, certain monsters and defeat them with specific attacks so they would give you maximum experience points. And yeah. then after only just a meager 200,000 hours or something, you would... 
and then there's also uh, that's I just remember this. There, there are like these super powerful weapons that you can that you can get then by triggering specific series of events, and suddenly your characters are much stronger than they've ever been throughout the entire story. You wouldn't even know that this potential for character growth and for strength is even there unless you unlocked it. And it's so cool because there's so much post-game stuff that what I love about it, so many games don't do this. Sometimes games will have post-game stuff where maybe there's like an extra boss or uh, there's maybe a nice weapon that you can collect, but it's really just a number uh, that's maxed out. In Final Fantasy X, when you do these extra things, it really fleshes out the world of Spira in a way that I find completely enthralling. So the weapons that you just mentioned, every character has a special weapon that you need a crest and a sigil to find. And what you kind of come to find out is that all of these weapons were at some point designed to kill Sin. That's, they, they were just left behind by people who failed. So there's that aspect of it. The labyrinth that you mentioned is this incredible quest uh, about Omega, which in the Final Fantasy universe, usually Omega weapon is the secret boss. But they flesh that out further by telling this really cool story about this guy Omega was a monk of the Yevon Order who was tired of sin coming back. And he said, I, I don't think our religion is working. So he went out on his own and tried to find a way to defeat sin once and for all and became so obsessed with this idea that he turned into this horrible monster when he died. And that's the thing that you're finding to defeat. So what I love about Final Fantasy X's postgame is that it's all curated to be uh, mirrored to your journey throughout Spira, where everything kind of fleshes out what you're finding and just makes it all that much more interesting. It's true. It adds an entire new, entirely new layer on mm. top of everything you have experienced so far. Um, and it also uh, has one of the most iconic elements, which is uh, for some of the enemies and especially the end game bosses they are so strong that you've got basically you've got two options either you grind mindlessly for dozens and dozens of hours and i partially did that yes mm. of course i would go to a logic lecture <clears throat> and i would basically play the ps vita under the table because <laughs> it doesn't require any kind of brain activity you're just running no. around and then it's you know random encounters you just hit like attack 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 or you know, always know which kind of attacks defeat the enemies the quickest, and you grind for experience points. Or, uh, I should say, and or, because both are required, there is a particular attack by a summon. Uh, Yojimbo is mm. uh, his name. He's like a samurai, if I recall correctly. Yeah. And you can pay him to uh, do a certain attack. And it has like this very intricate mechanic that depends on the relationship with the character that's summoning him, but also the frequency to which he is summoned in battles and all kinds of things. And you can, by putting in many hours, condition your Jinbo to do pretty reliably, like 89% or something chance, to do that one attack that will kill any enemy instantly, including the very endgame bosses. And that was for me the true challenge to have form that bond with your Jinbo and yeah. get the money, the, the financial investment just right so that he would always do that attack. Which, you know, it sounds like, it sounds like, oh, that's cut. Doesn't that take the fun out of it? I no, it doesn't. And I'll tell you why, because as you mentioned, there's this completely secretive mechanic that 
raises your affection with Yojimbo. And the coolest part of it to me is Yojimbo means guardian, basically, right? In Japanese. And that's what your party members are called, protecting, protecting Yuna, the guardians. And so, again, there's this great subtle mechanic that says the closer you are with Yojimbo, the guardian summon, the easier it is to get past any hardship. It's a uh, Final Fantasy X is good, I think. <laughs> it's a good game. Yeah, yeah. it's <laughs> worth playing. I mean, uh, for me, most of all, the Blitzball mini game is what really makes the title work. It's like a, <laughs> a it's like a, a mini game where you basically play, let's say, something like volleyball but underwater, or football underwater. Yeah, it's it's deceptively fun. I think because uh, you think like a sports game in a or sports mini game, and you're like, eh, I don't know if I want to play that. But then you get really invested in it, and you lose several hours to blitzball yeah we should do an episode on the best mini games in games <laughs> we should yeah i can hear the blitzball theme in my head right now yeah me too yeah, yeah. when you open up the tournament and yeah, yeah. it's yep. also it's not just the thing on the field but also if i recall correctly um there's an entire like simulation entire like management simulation because you can like buy uh -huh. other players and you can integrate them into the team <laughs> let's not go into that too much but that was yeah. part of the reason what why final fantasy 10 excited me so much back in the day uh, let's do one that's not Japanese. Uh, let's okay. do Celeste. <laughs> yeah, go for Celeste. it. Celeste, Maddie Makes Games 2018. Um, we don't need to give any spoilers for uh, a, spo a spoiler warning because we don't really have to talk about the narrative that much. Celeste, though, just to give you like a, a vague idea, is about uh, a young girl. She basically, she suffers from, um, you could say, it could be depression or it could be an anxiety disorder, something like mm. that. And uh, she, her name is Madeline, and she attempts to climb Mount Celeste, which is her biggest challenge, a challenge that she has given herself in order to come to terms with her struggles or to overcome her struggles. And over the course of her adventure, she finds out that there's like a dark side to her, like a dark version of her that is trying to prevent her from progressing, and ultimately you need to learn to cooperate. It's a beautiful platformer where you basically just jump from screen to screen and you collect little strawberries and so on and it's very fun and quite narratively focused i would say what is not so obvious is that once you're entirely done with the game and once the credits roll you unlock new levels or let's say harder versions of already existing levels mm. and these are called b-sides and c-sides and they are really the part where the game kind of completely sheds its narrative framing and instead focuses entirely on mechanics. And mm. it goes to show that Celeste is an impressive platformer in itself because it challenges you to such a degree that you try the levels over and over again. You try to speedrun them. You try to collect all the strawberries and it expands upon that to such a degree that it becomes almost like a game in itself, which is something that I did not expect in Celeste. I think it's interesting because a lot of the games on our list have this kind of feeling where the main story is like a tutorial <laughs> to give you the, uh, the understanding of the mechanics and how things work so that you can go into the post game and really kind of see what all the game has to offer. And I haven't, I, I, I have to confess, I haven't played Celeste. Uh, it sounds really cool though. And it sounds exactly like that where you kind of get used to the controls and then you go and really challenge yourself afterwards. 
I think it could be a combination of both. That it's like, uh, it functions as a tutorial, but it also, the main uh, part, like everything that happens before the credits roll, that is kind of what's uh, narratively conceptualized every step of the way. Oh, and then cool. I could imagine from a developer's perspective that you would think, hmm, now we've we've built this amazing mechanic, this amazing platformer mechanic, and we made it all embedded in this narrative structure. Now we told our story. Now let's just go crazy and see <laughs> what we can do with these just gameplay tools and just challenge players to the extreme. Really completing the seaside levels, I can only recommend just looking up a, I don't know, like some kind of like super cut on YouTube or something. It is absolutely impressive. It requires frame exact precision. And the only reason why I was able to do it, actually, <laughs> I'm just going to sp spill the beans here. The only reason why I was able to do it is because it's got some accessibility settings. Celeste oh, is also right. a very accessible game that it doesn't judge you. It's like, you know, if you want to just play the game without dying, go to town. You know, we're not judging. I like that attitude about it. So, like, halfway through the seasides, I think, I just said, you know, screw it. I'm going to go, like, uh, just reset me and don't don't kill me, basically. Yeah. And so you can just run through the level. And I admire just its beauty. Just, wow, this must be so hard to get through without, without, without this accessibility cheat. Uh, it was really an impressive experience. And I did not expect it to find it in Celeste. I, I like when games do that, where they, they give you the tools to experience the beauty of the game without the frustration of dying over and over again. <laughs> yeah, basically just saying, you know, if, if that's how you, want to, how you want to play this, then it's perfectly fine, you know. I, that's accessibility, of course. There yeah. might be some people who say, I want to experience the story and I can't make it through any other way. So why not let people trigger that kind of God mode? Now, before we move on, shall we take a brief break? 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And we are back talking about surprising post games. That is games that have some kind of interesting twist after the credits roll. And we're staying in the domain of platformers. Yes, with our favorite orange marsupial friend, Crash Bandicoot. <laughs> so yes. Crash Bandicoot 2 did something really cool where the main setup of the game is that you're collecting crystals because the evil Dr. Neo Cortex is after them to power some kind of horrific machine to take over the world. It's his kind name of vague. Is, his name is Neo Cortex. Yeah. Of Dr. Course. Neo Cortex. <laughs> yes. He's got a big N on his forehead, and uh, it looks like he has jaundice. <laughs> <laughs> and he, uh, he wants these power crystals to power his evil machines. But uh, once you start playing the game, you realize there's not just the crystals, there's also gems, where if you break every box in a level and go through it, which gets to be really difficult, you're rewarded with a gem. And about halfway through the game... Uh, Neocortex's um, erstwhile compatriot, Dr. N. Brio, uh, comes oh up on God. the hologram. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he says, hey, I don't like Cortex any more than you do, Crash. So if you get all of the gems, then we can take him down. So if you play through the game, the 25-ish levels, and you get all the crystals, you beat Cortex at the end of it, but then... If you don't have all the gems, which you can't, because you can't get all of them until after the game, uh, Cortex says, oh, but there's still the gems, and he's looking to get after them, and then Brio is having his little side quest. So I'm not talking rocket science here, it's just more collectibles, but it is very fun where, again, it's this kind of setup where the main game is collecting the crystals and learning how Crash moves and how the platforming works, and then really getting the gems is pretty difficult and you have to really master crash's controls and know the level layouts to find secret areas where you can get different gems and things like this so it's uh it was my first foray into post game when i was a little kid <laughs> and it very works very similarly to how celeste works where it's basically mm. just if you are coming around for the story and for the fun characters and stuff, then you're done at this point. Then basically after the credits, you can say, okay, I'm going to move on with my life. But if you are there for the mechanics and for the challenge, you can stick around and explore some more and get out of it everything that is there. Yep. And there's a really fun mechanic that was introduced in Crash Bandicoot 2 that has remained in the game since then, which is you can get 106% completion. <laughs> In all of the game. <laughs> and that's how, how you really, you know, finish up the crash games. 106 percent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I think we have to return to Japanese video games though. Us? Um, I don't know what yeah, but <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, actually, we've got quite a lot of Japanese games on here, and I think either that is... Uh, no, it's probably both. It's probably because we have a certain predilection for Japanese games, mm. but it is also because uh, lots of Japanese games are rather extensive and quite exploratory with their post-game content. Mm. Uh, one of them, one of these genres is certainly the dating game genre. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know it's one that I have not much experience with, I must admit, but I do know a game that's called, uh, in English, it's called Hatterfall Boyfriend, A School of Hope and White Wings. And I'm going to uh, take a shot at pronouncing the Japanese name as well, just for the lols. <laughs> <laughs> so it is called Hatofuru Kareshi Kibono Gakuen to Shiroi Tsubasa. Yokuyata. Very well done. <laughs> Which exactly means a school of hope and white wings. And mm. the... The interesting thing, you can already deduce the entire content of the game just by its name, that the Hatoful Boyfriend, the Hatofuru Kareshi, that is actually a wordplay. Because, of course, it means on the one hand, heartful, which is the first association that comes to mind. It has nothing to do with hate, even though it's spelled more like hate than heart. Mm. Uh, but Hato is also uh, the pigeon in <laughs> Japanese. And so what you do in this dating sim... <laughs> Is that I think you're a human, if I recall correctly, but you are in a world of, or in a school <laughs> that's entirely populated by pigeons. And the entire Naturally. game is like, of course, as you do, right. the entire game is like comical in its aesthetics, but the pigeons, they are actually, they look like, um, they are just like imported images of actual pigeons. <laughs> so they are like actual pigeons and... At the beginning, you start playing the game because of the lols, because it's hilarious, because it's over the top, because it's silly. And then in the second stage while playing the game, um, this is not spoilery here, really, but um, I'm going to, I don't think there's a spoiler warning necessary for this one. Mm. Um, in the second stage of engaging with this game, you actually get to know the characters and you start to get attached to them. And suddenly you realize, wow, I really care about these pigeons, you know, and I really got like <laughs> romantic favorites amongst the pigeons mm. they are so well written that you just can't help but feel empathetic and then once you're at that point you think okay now i'm fully in this kind of dating sim logic when at a certain point the game suddenly starts to take a turn and it all turns from kind of a dating sim more like into a a mystery thriller video game like a visual novel Okay. Yeah, well, we see, like, it, it, there's lots of, you know, like, uh, global terrorism and viruses <laughs> and trauma and all sorts of things going on. Um, this is not, I want to emphasize a difference here. This is not like uh, Tokidoki Literature Club, which I mm. think is um, very well known on the internet by now, which is Definitely. like... Definitely, yeah. Yeah, Tokidoki Literature Club is also a game that's basically like a cutesy book club dating visual novel. But uh, then a couple of hours in, it turns into like a very psychological horror thing for the right, shock right. value. Um, Hatoful Boyfriend is not like that. It doesn't really, um, it's it's not like, oh, get scared now. Or, oh, this is so creepy and so meta. But it just tells a genuinely interesting story then that just happens to take place in a world of pigeons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, Hatoful I, Boyfriend. I think that's brilliant too. 
hook you in with something ridiculous, but then remain heartfelt and sincere <laughs> afterwards. That's really great. <laughs> yeah. This game would not have gotten any attention if it wasn't for the pigeons. Yeah. Because hey. you can't see it. These visual novels, they often, they look kind of like samey, samey, you know, they, mm. they are just like, mm -hmm. they're made in relatively low entry threshold, um, you know, like engines. And they are, they work roughly the same way. You've got these like the lines flowing around at the bottom and you just click through it. And then at some points you've got a decision to make. Uh, but uh, yeah, the the pigeon is just the eye catcher. Well, it's funny because it's a testament to the writing. Because really, all you have in those games is the the compelling nature of the writing, right? So, the fact that they they hook you and you stick around for pigeons is is a testament to those people writing it. I think, if I'm not mistaken, there's even one particular pigeon in there. I'm I'm not actually sure whether he's a pigeon or whether he's just some kind of other bird. But he's always like he's always like the a weirdo. And he speaks, oh, you don't say. <laughs> <laughs> he speaks in these cryptic terms that are like directly drawn from some kind of super abstract JRPG. So he's like the power of Edelweiss and so on, you know, like and uses <laughs> all of Edelweiss. these. Yeah, <laughs> always uses these like German terminology uh, to sprinkle it in there. And you think like this, uh, this bird is just completely absorbed in some kind of live action role playing or something. Mm. And I think it. Turns out that he's actually completely on point about what's going on in the world. <laughs> uh, the Oracle of Delphi, cursed to always be correct. Yes. Hatoful <laughs> Karesi. Hatoful Boyfriend. Recommendation for me. It's relatively short. It's a manageable game. I got to play it. I, speaking of short and the complete antithesis of that, the Neo games. <laughs> Neo. Yes. I am on record as saying that I love Neo and Neo 2. They're two of my favorite games uh, for a lot of reasons. I mean, one, the Japanese aesthetic, the history, the historical element of it, the idea of this kind of being a really hyper-stylized, um, almost fairy tale version of history. It's They're really compelling games. But beyond the story, which is a cool kind of um, fantastical look at Japanese history and myth, there's a lot of gameplay after you beat the the game. The way that Neo and Neo 2 handle their post-game or their new game plus is different from any game that I've really seen, which is in the in the base game, there's usually around five areas of the world that you can explore, each with maybe 10 to 15 levels where you can go and you fight a bunch of enemies, you get to a boss, and then you get a reward. So what the new game plus feature does in Neo and Neo 2 is you beat the first portion of the game and then you go to a new game plus level that you are able to access freely. So for example, the first level may be called the dream of the samurai. And then you go to the next level, it's called the dream of the demon. And it's much harder and you get much better rewards. And then when you defeat that version of the game, you get another one, <laughs> the dream of the strong, right? I think I may have those mixed up but that's the conceit you keep going through and playing these levels on harder and harder difficulties getting better and better weapons to the point where the min maxing in neo and neo 2 is off the charts and i think that it's a really smart way of recycling content without it feeling repetitive because these levels aren't the same and just harder often there are different harder enemies bosses are replaced with late game bosses 
So you have to really think about your loadout going into the level and your strategy about getting to the final boss uh, much different than the first iteration of the game was. So this is one of these examples where um, developers might have felt like, okay, so we have the main section of the game where we lead players through a fantastical story and then we bring it to a closure and then the people that want to stick around and properly explore the mechanics in depth they can come back, do the new game plus, and dive into these alternate levels. Yeah, it's really cool. And on top of the the normal um, levels being kind of amped up, there's also these things called Twilight Missions, which are different levels that are completely changed. Kind of like what you were saying, it sounds like with the B and C sides of Celeste, where yeah. it's, it's very familiar level structure, but the enemies are much harder. There's different scares around each turn it makes it a completely different game and i think that uh that's what came to mind when we were kind of talking about the main game is like a tutorial here's all the mechanics and the story and then if you really want to play the game that we developed you can go into the post game <laughs> yeah and it must be such an amazing feeling when you make these things and when you're like mm. well we've we've got all of the mechanics in place we have everything here that we need now, before we as a developer studio move on to something else, why don't we get the most out of it and really challenge players who want that kind of challenge? I find that very interesting. It's so cool. And I know we're not really talking about DLC, but the cool thing about the postgame for Neo before the DLC was released was if you were to get through the two or three levels of postgame content, the New Game Plus levels, by the time the DLC came out, you'd think you would be overpowered and overleveled to go into the DLC. But, but they kind of made the DLC assuming you were going to do all of that. So oh, it's wow. even harder. <laughs> I'm scared. I actually played quite a bit of Neo 2, if I recall correctly. I, mm. I skipped on the first one and then I jumped into the second one at some later point, but I never... I didn't play much... I said quite a bit just now, but that's actually inaccurate. I played only a couple of hours of it, found it mm. super cool, super engaging, and then moved on and did other things and kind of forgot about it. They, uh, the team behind it, um, I think it's, it's Team Ninja, I think. Yeah, it is. It's Team Ninja and the uh, Koei Tecmo group. They're putting out Wolong Fi uh, Fallen Dynasty coming out in a month as of this recording. Yes. And I am so excited because it looks like the Neo treatment to Chinese history and myth. And so it's uh, another 800 hours of my life that I'm going to be spending <laughs> in it. <laughs> well, at least though, I see a typology of post-game content shining through all our elaborations so far. Because mm. we've got this kind of type of post-game that is a further exploration of mechanics. Let's say it's like just the challenging post-game where you have played through the main mechanics throughout the story and it's basically like a tutorial. Then afterwards, the story hull is shed and you focus only on the mechanics. So it's the challenging post-game. And then we've had other titles such as Dragon Quest, which it also has that. Though Dragon Quest often, it doesn't really get that hard. It's mm. not like, it's a grindy, but it's not hard. Um, which, and, uh, of course, uh, Hatoful Boyfriend just now. These are more games that take surprising narrative turns in their post-game, where it's like 
you thought the game was over in the credits, but it actually isn't. And now the journey is just beginning, basically. Well, I have, I have an interesting meld of the two of them for you. And that is a little franchise called Pokemon. <laughs> ah, I've heard of yeah. it. I've heard yes. of it. Uh, there's some Pikachus involved. It's a very yes. fancy Pika thing. Pika Pika. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just well, learned a couple of days ago, actually, that Pika Pika is the um, the spark, the sparkling. Uh, yeah. Uh, onomatopoeia for sparking. Pikachu meaning sparky mouse. And then yes. <laughs> Raichu meaning uh, thunder mouse or next mouse. Because <laughs> it evolved. <laughs> um, well, Pokemon, since... I want to I want to shout out a couple of games because all of Pokemon except Red, Blue and Green, the original, have a really extensive post game. And it really rewards the player for not only being in, interested and involved with the narrative, but also understanding the kind of meta mechanics when it comes to training your Pokemon to be stronger. So this started in Gold and Silver, the second generation of games where the first time I can remember really doing a post game that surprised me was when I was a kid and I played gold and silver because the post game for that, those games are you go through, you do the eight badges like you did in the previous game and you beat the elite four and then the credits roll and you come back to your hometown and the professor calls you up and says, Hey, you should go back to Kanto, the, the first region. <laughs> You should go over there and see what's going on. There's another eight badges over there. So you go and you travel to the Kanto region. You fight all of the gym leaders. It's three years later after the first game. So there's all these different changes to the world that you were so familiar with in red and blue and green. And then it all culminates in the final battle being against red, the trainer from the first game. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting and so extensive that... You really don't put together that that was how the game should have been played until you go back, as I did, a 30-year-old man, and realize, why are all of my Pokemon level 30 when I'm fighting the Elite Four? That's really low. Mm. Oh, it's because I'm only halfway through the game. (laughs) That is really impressive. I like that it's, in addition to being just an engaging post-game, it is one that's there for the fans. Yes. Where it's like, if you are a fan of this series, then you've probably played other games. So here's your special treat, your cherry on the cake, or rather another cake on top of the cake. <laughs> yeah, that we've and it, is, it is a whole other cake. And it's, it's really interesting to see how the world developed, because it is three years later and the events of the first game took place. And the, the other one that I want to shout out, because every Pokemon game really has a really interesting post-game, but the one that I find to be kind of the post-game of all post-games is one that I played very recently. So after I played Scarlet and Violet, I wanted to go back and play some of the games that I had never touched because Scarlet and Violet has a really interesting post-game that you can hear about in our episode on that. But the coolest one, I think, is in Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon. So these games, the entire story of the game happens. And then afterwards... There's a whole episode called the RR episode, and it is where a team, Team Rainbow Rocket, shows up in the Alola region, and you realize that they're not the Team Rocket that you're used to from the original games. Turns out, this Team Rocket is a Team Rocket that succeeded in what they wanted to do in the first game, 
And the leader, Giovanni, has ripped the team leaders from all other games, from worlds where they succeeded and won, and you have to run through a gauntlet of fighting the team leaders until you get to Giovanni. It's one of the coolest (laughs) things that really, in a way, feels like a weird send-off to Pokemon, (laughs) because it's you get to see all of these villains again, you fight them all a second time as this character, you run through them very quickly. And the really cool thing to me was that after defeating each of them, they say, well, it's too late for me now. I already succeeded in my evil plan. But I wonder, maybe, if there was a trainer like you in my world, if things would have been different. It's just a very sweet kind of realization that you're helping people through these games, kind of saving them from themselves. And I really loved playing through that one. You're helping people. You are also kind of interfering a little bit, or it's not interfering. It's a, you're adding some flavoring, some mm. extra flavoring to the games that you've previously played. Yeah. And to the recollection of those, because whenever you think of that older game now, maybe, then you will also associate it or connect it with Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon. I think that's really smart. And I'm so glad that you point that out because I wasn't aware of it at all. I've never. I've, often finished Pokemon games or just played yeah. them until the credits roll. By that time, I was usually so tired of it that I just <laughs> thought, I'm going to just go and do something else because it's just too much for me. Too much, you know, Pokemon grindiness collectathon. Yeah. But I like that since you pointed out to me the significance of Pokemon post games, I have a new perspective on them. It's, it's funny because I feel when I was looking up uh, different post games for this episode where I was kind of refreshing my memory on a few of them. Obviously, Pokemon is the one that comes up the most. And I think it's just because most people have played it. And there's an online debate about whether the game itself is up to becoming the champion or if it's really the post game. Like, what is the Pokemon game that you're playing? What is the What is the canonical text, basically? Yes. It's very interesting. So... Yeah, if you haven't uh, played past the, you know, champion-making event in Pokemon, uh, I would recommend that you do, because that's where some of the most interesting content comes from. Now, one more we definitely have to address, because now to just continuing in constructing our typology, we've got mm. the challenging post-game, that's just like a mechanical challenge. We've got the narrative post-game, that is basically a surprising twist or turn in the story. And we've got games that combine both of them. Because, yeah, Pokemon is legitimately one of the uh, titles that combines both of them. Mm. But Neo Automata, mm. uh, <laughs> that is on a whole other level. And uh, I think at this point, at least, we don't necessarily need a spoiler warning because we don't need to go into the details of what actually happens. But We'd be here for another episode if we did that. <laughs> yes, that is a game that you can read super deep into. Uh, we don't have to do that right now, but I think it's just interesting to point out that Neotomata, it is uh, structurally an entire post-game in itself. So it, mm-hmm. the story of Neotomata, it unfolds in a cyclical fashion. And when you reach the credits for the first time, it is only the first time out of many. The credits are in no way a signal to you to stop playing, because that's only when the next chapter begins. And Nia plays with that very smartly so that you never really know 
Okay, so I played it all the way through, but there's so many questions in my head. And then the next cycle gives you just a little bit more, just enough answers so that you continue playing. And then suddenly it transforms its genre, as it often does, into a completely different thing. And then you're like, wow, this is amazing. And then you see the next thing. and It just keeps going like that. I found that completely impressive. I've never seen anything like it. It's so cool. And what's even more interesting to me about it is that it plays with your it plays with your expectations regardless of your um, interaction with Drakengard and Nier prior to this, Yoko Taro's other work. Because I I hadn't played Drakengard, but I had played Nier. It was just called Nier when it was released in America. Technically, it's Nier Gestalt, I think. Yes. And the version that's out that was released uh, as kind of a remaster is the Nier Replicant version. But both of those games do something similar where there's multiple endings where you see kind of in a Rashomon kind of sense, you see different perspectives of what's happening. So the original Nier games took the Drakengard multiple ending formula and changed it to reveal more information from different perspectives of the character so you get a full, complete story. Then Nier Automata comes along and maybe playing with that expectation that you have as a as a <laughs> engager of Yoko Taro's work and it flips it on its head again. So it's interesting, Stefan, because we, full disclosure, we went into this episode just thinking, hey, let's talk about post games. And we have developed a typology that's ended with Nero Todd. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I've got to say one little bonus mention, one little mm. bonus mention, because I'm not sure whether it technically qualifies, because we said like post game is what happens after the credits roll. And I mm. don't know whether this applies in this case, because I actually don't remember at which point exactly the credits roll. But I'm talking about Red Dead Redemption 2. Oh, sure. Um, I would like to definitely, here's a big spoiler warning for Red Dead Redemption 2. So if you do want to still go into that game without knowing the ending, then you now have the chance to skip ahead uh, two to three minutes. Um, In Red Dead Redemption, it's befitting to the title all about Arthur Morgan, who basically commits quite some heinous acts. And then Mm. upon his impending death, uh, it subverts many expectations as in you know getting stronger and faster in red dead redemption in fact it's the other way around you get weaker and weaker (laughs) Uh, and then he kind of tries to turn his life around and depending on his choices he's uh, on the choices that you make as a player he's successful in that to varying degrees but at the at the end of the game uh, arthur morgan dies and you think there's nothing that can come after that Mm. and then a whole nother chapter starts where you play the role of, uh, what was his name? John, I think, right? Mm, mm-hmm. Yes, of John, who was the protagonist in the first game. And you basically end up playing the prequel to Red Dead Redemption 1. Uh, so it's a really interesting engagement with setting up the character for what you know will yeah. later happen already. Also, a really, just a cool way to do a duology uh, Neo and Neo 2 are very similar. I'm not going to go into detail, but this idea that the sequel is also a prequel that wraps into the original is kind of also with Pokemon in a way, you know, there's just this kind of comment on cycl- cyclical natures of, of stories and characters and 
Man, a really cool post game can really make you think about other titles in the series a whole yeah. lot. It affects how you view the uh, first title in the series, in this case, Red Dead yeah. Redemption. But it also affects how you feel while playing the game. Because while mm. I knew already how Red Dead Redemption 1 ended, of course, and that is why the, my experience of the post-game in Red Dead Redemption 2 was so uh, melancholic and so yeah. intense. Because it's like you're building up the entire life that you know, at a later point, uh, the character is going to lose everything. It's uh, really intense. And to me, Red Dead Redemption 2... Uh, anyway, one of the best games ever made. You know, isn't it great that uh, <laughs> that every time you and I talk, Stefan, I feel like we find another reason to love video games? <laughs> <laughs> There's so many of them. Mm. Well, thank you so very much for listening to this episode. Please share your favorite post games. You can do that by going to studyingpixels.com slash contact or you can also join our beautiful Discord server where we have some chats and exchange fun little screenshots of video games we're currently playing and whatnot. There's a news feed, all kinds of buzz going on. <laughs> if you wish to, then join us there. And of course, tune in next week again when we're going to talk about... I have no idea. We haven't really... We've had an idea, but I think we have to postpone it a little bit. So we'll see. I don't know either what we're going to talk about next week. It's a secret to all of us. Tune in for the Studying Pixels postgame where you find out what, we, what we're doing next time. A secret episode. Bye-bye. See you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.